0: Welcome to The Trail Ahead. Conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, culture, and the outdoors. We're your hosts, Addie and Faith. We bring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change.
1: We want it to be like the norm for them to see people that look like them, people of color, who are providing the surf instruction and who are out there riding waves with them, you know, charging it with them.
0: This week, we talked to a Tongular Monique, a connector, community builder, and all-around badass athlete, helping to make the outdoors more inclusive and less homogenous.
2: Her work with La Rubea Collective, TriHard Crew, Young Women Who Crush, and other initiatives makes surfing and climbing more accessible to low-income and historically marginalized communities throughout New York City and beyond. So our guest this week is Atangular Monique. Atang. thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me on this episode. I appreciate you both. So as Faith said, my name is Etangular Monique. I am the Community Outreach and Program Director with the La Rubea Collective. We're an organization where we provide free surf lessons and rock climbing lessons to the historically excluded youth in Far Rockaway, Queens, New York.
2: Thank you. And and for folks that don't know much about Far Rockaway Queens, where is it? How do you get there? What's it look like? And maybe surprisingly for some folks, I think some folks would be like, wait, what? This is New York City? <laughs>
1: Yes, absolutely. So Far Rockaway is in Queens, New York. It's on a peninsula. So it's surrounded by water. On the south side of us, there's the ocean. And on the um, north side of us, there's the bay. And you can get there by train. You can get there by train or buses. Uh, It's very accessible and it's great. I live here on the peninsula. I travel into the city for work uh, via the subway. And I used to actually bike it to the Rockaways, to, to Far Rockaway. You surf with my surfboard on a surfboard rag on my bike. You would bike
0: from Brooklyn to Far Rockway with your surfboard on your bike. Yes. It would take
1: me an hour and 15 minutes one way. I would leave super early in the morning, like when it's super dark uh, before dawn. And what I loved about that bike ride that early in the morning is I got to watch the sunrise, you know. There's a bridge that I cross over to um, get onto the peninsula and it was just like a beautiful view, just breathtaking view and just actually a breath of fresh air. Just being on your bike outdoors is a breath of fresh air to me. But specifically to bike it to Far Rockaway, you know, on this peninsula, this coastal
0: beach area. And how did you get into surfing in the first place? Like, what was that journey like?
1: Well, I grew up in Florida along the Gulf Coast, and there was surfing there. I've always wanted to learn how to surf. Again, you know, the equipment it was a lot of money, money that we couldn't afford. As an adult, I heard about surfing in far Rockaway from various people that I met throughout the years during my time here in New York, my 20-plus year in New York. One day I mentioned it to a friend and they were like, oh, yeah, I've been surfing out in Far Rockaway. I was like, really? They said, hey, when you're ready to go, I know a surf school I can take you to and we'll learn how to surf. And I told him I'm ready, went, and I've been hooked ever since. I just, I, I mean, I started making daily trips, like coming out nearly every day, just so I can get good, get better, improve on my surfing skill and technique. And that's when biking came into play. I was biking throughout the city, you know, for, as my transportation. And we'll bike it here with my surfboard and bike it back home and so forth and so on. I love that so much. Yeah, just that image. And I... You know,
2: back to accessibility, you know, I had lived in Crown Heights, Brooklyn for six years before moving out to Portland, Oregon, where I live now. And I didn't drive when I moved out here. And I I got everywhere that I wanted to go on foot or on bike or on the train, including going out to the Rockaways. Like we had friends that would run the 13 miles to the beach. And then when we got there, we'd like get in the water and eat tacos and hang out all day. <laughs> and I remember actually my aunt taking me out to Perakway when I was really little and being on this amazing beach and being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is here. Yeah.
1: I know that feeling like that's the same way to and I felt uh, after moving here, we were like, why did it take us so long to move here? Like, I don't understand. I don't get it. Um, we're grateful to be here. We're so thankful. It's amazing, beautiful. We have a community out here, you know, especially our La Rubea community. Our executive director and co-founder Aiden is here. The other co-founder Warren Sampson is here. And they have been amazing. And there are are family. There are family out here on this peninsula. Can you tell us, what is La Rubea? How did it
2: come to be that whole thing?
1: Okay, so La Rubea is an organization where we provide free surf lessons. It's how it began. It began in 2018. And it provides lessons for kids who live out here in the peninsula, black and brown kids who have been historically excluded from activities like surfing. They saw the opportunity to make this happen with their own money. They bought a few surfboards, uh, wave storms, you know, at Costco and got some kids out onto the waves. Warren learned how to surf himself and he was the person providing the surf instruction to the kids while aiden was the person who was picking up all the kids and you know providing all the snacks and everything and getting them to the beach and they saw this need because you have these kids who live right here on the beach and they don't have access to these things surfing is expensive the equipment the gear adds up and it's a lot of money and they decided that they wanted to make this happen for a group of kids. Like it started with Aiden's daughter and then her friends. And then it built from there.
0: It was so amazing to get to meet the Lara Bea community a little bit. Aiden, a couple other folks who were out the day that we came out. Yeah, it was so wonderful to see see the community you just mentioned. Like really see it. I was standing with Aiden, I think, for... 15 minutes. And in the course of that time, I think we saw, you know, 20 different people come through and kind of have these different connections with Aiden. He told me the story about his daughters and how, you know, the access piece was always an issue and how it really seems like Larabea is connecting folks to opportunities and access and knowledge. We've interviewed a few wonderful guests who are surfers and talk about how the surf community is not always the most welcoming in general, let alone the the cost component.
1: Yes, it's so true. And that is another aspect of this, too, is to show these kids and also to have them receive surf instruction from people that look like them. For me, it's a big deal as an adult to have that, and so I can only imagine what it means to them to have that themselves. You know, we want it to be like the norm for them to see people that look like them, people of color, who are providing the surf instruction and who are out there riding waves with them. You know, charging it with them. Yeah, I mean,
2: you know, so I had an opportunity to come out another day and take some surf lessons with you and some of the other leaders from La Rubea. And afterwards, I was like, this, or probably during, I think the whole time I was just like, this has never happened to me before, like for me before. This has never happened to be able to go surfing with four other Black women who are all rad surfers and can like teach me what to do. It was really, it was such a powerful experience. And I agree, like for me to have that experience as an adult, I can only imagine having had that experience younger and having that be normalized, like not being the only, Black person out surfing because we've talked to so many surfers, including, you know, we had Salema Masakella on last year, and he was like talking about whenever another black surfer arrives, even if they don't know each other, like paddle over to each other and like, hey, hey, like, what are you doing here? Hey. <laughs>
1: That's how I met like a, a few black surfers out here was I saw them and I immediately went to them and introduced myself. <laughs> so we pretty much all know each other. And if we don't, we will get to know each other when we see each other out in the water. Um, we do make that point to say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? How long you been out here? And just connect and stay connected. Cause it's great to have a community. Our community has evolved, it has grown and it keeps growing. And and it's a beautiful thing to, to be a part of and to see.
2: And I, you know, I lived in, in New York in 2012 when Hurricane Sandy hit. And for folks that don't know, Hurricane Sandy was in the grand scheme of things, a small hurricane for some folks, but it devastated New York city. I mean, the whole city was flooded, Lower Manhattan was flooded. Restaurants were flooded. Homes were flooded. Like it was very difficult for people to recover. And for Rockaway, that peninsula was arguably hit the hardest. Yes. And the whole boardwalk was washed it out. Was. Can you talk a little bit about how that experience impacted the place and what has happened in the aftermath of that To from your experience and perspective?
1: My experience, so I wasn't living here during the time, but I do remember it was so destroyed. But the community rallied. You know, what it looks like today is this beautiful long boardwalk that you can bike or or run or walk down. And they're still building it. Like they just built this new skate park up in the 90s, beach 90s. They are building, rebuilding playgrounds and uh, rebuilding. Handball courts. They're still doing quite a bit of rebuilding and also building a new uh, set of community called Auburn East and the Beach 40 section of Far Rockaway. Uh, but from what I remember, my experience was the boardwalk was gone. It wasn't even here. I remember coming to here and it just looked completely different. And, you know, of course, there, unfortunately, there were some folks who lost their homes, you know, with the flooding and that got completely washed out. But to see where it is today after that time, it's amazing to see it being rebuilt and to see where it is and where it's at. But with that said, again, you know, you have a lot of black and brown folks that are here that live here on the peninsula who were affected by it as well. Unfortunately, they seem to they've survived it and they seem to be thriving.
2: For more contacts on Hurricane Sandy, a.k.a. Superstorm Sandy and the impact in Fire Rockaway, We'll include some links in our show notes, since I'm not an expert on the subject, and I'm speaking really from my own experience and memory. While a lot of work has been done since in the former resilience efforts, Rockaway has always been plagued by huge socioeconomic inequality. This is partially due to post-World War II economic segregation by New York leadership, which pushed marginalized residents out of downtown and other economically flourishing areas of Manhattan and into waterfront communities instead. This type of inequity is always exacerbated when climate disaster hits, leaving the most vulnerable in even more dire positions. It does not fix itself. And 10 years later,
1: that history is still a part of the story of this place, too. We want to be a part of them thriving and really, really enjoying the community and having fun in their backyard as well. If I can make, I want to mention we also are part of the Water Safety uh, Coalition here in New York or in Far Rockaway, Queens, New York specifically. And we are trying to get uh, water safety and basic swimming lessons mandated for schools, grades K through 12 uh, for all of New York, for the whole New York state. Right now, there is a Senate bill and I believe it's going to be voted on soon. I don't know the date, but we're hoping that it passes. We really want and need that bill to pass because what's unfortunate is there have been a lot of deaths and it's black and brown kids who are high on the list of deaths here on the peninsula, either in the bay part of the peninsula or on the ocean side of the peninsula and um, water safety education. And learning basic swim skills is super important to the Lower Bay Collective. And, and that's something that we're passionate about. We are looking into starting our own swim program as well, because we don't want to leave a child behind. In order to participate in our program, you have to have the basic water safety skills and know how to swim and float. And there, we get a lot of students who re- apply, sign up with us, and they don't know how to swim. And so we don't want to leave them behind. We want them to gain those skills and then to graduate to surfing, uh, which is the thing that they really want to do. So we're working on that right now.
0: In 2017, the USA Swimming Foundation did a comprehensive survey of children's swimming abilities. The results revealed how deeply socioeconomic background relates to access to swimming and thus swimming ability. According to the study, 64% of young African-Americans, 45% of Hispanics, and 40% of Caucasians, primarily those living in low-income communities, have little to no swimming ability. Additionally, a 2021 report from the American Academy of Pediatrics revealed that drowning rates are higher among Black children and American Indian or Alaskan Native children. Black children ages 5 to 19 were five and a half times more likely to drown in a pool than white children of the same age. While these statistics are devastating, it's important we realize that these incidents are related and that there are people working toward a solution.
2: You know, one of the things that you said about like being able to play and participate in recreation in their own backyard, I can't emphasize enough for folks that haven't been to Far Rockaway, like what it would mean to live in a beachside community and not feel that you have access to the water. And I would say previous to programs like La Rubea, you've got a bunch of kids, which not always, but often means parents are working extra jobs. They're not necessarily going to be able to participate in leisure activities like taking your kid to the beach frequently, and they might not have the background themselves to teach that swimming. And so, yes, you might be living right next to the ocean, but without an invitation of some sort, how do you learn? How do you also get through some of the barriers that are s- scary, despite the fact that very few people, you know, and not that people don't get in shark attacks, but shark attacks are very, very few and far between. And yet so many people, when you talk about the ocean, they're like, well, no, because I'm afraid of sharks. So the creation of that invitation, I just think is so, so important. And And we recently had an episode with Gabe Vasquez down in New Mexico, who has been a part of a lot of outdoor equity policy and legislation in his home state and he said that you know he faces people who say like well if kids wanted to play outside they just open their back door and just really not understanding those barriers that do exist
1: yeah that do exist and you know it's so interesting some of the kids in our program have even said they didn't know that surfing was a thing or that it happened right there in their backyard they had no clue Isn't that interesting? And they've been living there. I mean, at this point, some of them are teens at this point. There's one who started as a 17 years old when she started, 16 or 17 when she started La Rubea. And now, I mean, she said so. She was like, I had no clue this existed. Her name is Formada. And she is so dope. And she is killing it right now. I was at another surf event at a surf
2: shop in New York and someone mentioned Fermata to me. They were like, you have to meet her. So not only has she like learned to surf, but she's like really, she's good. You know, people are talking about her. And it's just amazing to think that like she was right there, had no idea and had all this potential that was waiting to be unlocked, you know. And then I got to surf with her. So it's just so cool.
1: We are so proud of her. So proud of her to see the young woman, the beautiful, amazing, brilliant young woman that she is. Yeah,
2: that is so cool. I mean, just such a testament to what happens when someone just like looks around and cares (laughs) and it's like, hey, these kids are right here. They should be doing this, too.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: It's interesting because we've talked to a couple guests so far about the idea of mentorship sports. And I mean, I the more I think about this idea, the more I think that it actually is really pervasive in the outdoor industry. But the topic is really around endeavors that require some level of mentorship, whether that's, hey, here's how you do it. Here's how you do the thing. Or, you know, all the way to really taking someone under your wing, if you will, and showing them where to go, you know, what spots in in terms of surfing, like what's the break? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to position yourself? And I think that it was interesting. We talked to Brooklyn Bell, among others, who's a pro mountain biker up in Bellingham, Washington about this topic. And, you know, mountain biking emerged as that climbing as well, which I know we haven't even gotten into yet. But I've been reflecting a lot on this topic of mentorship, because I think there's so much that is encompassed in it in general. But then when you talk about the idea of representation and what you just mentioned at Tangular as well, like seeing yourself out on the waves or seeing someone teach you that looks like you like that to me is so important. And yet is something that could also present a barrier to access. Absolutely. If you don't have that. And I think it's what is hard to look around the outdoor industry today and see that so many activities do really have that mentorship barrier. Like if you don't have that person, that sort of like takes you in and shows you, you know, how to climb a multi-pitch or how to mountain bike down a trail that like, otherwise, if you don't know what you're doing, you will get thrown off your bike kind of thing. It's really interesting to think about, but I, I do think it has so many different levels. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, yeah.
1: So Speaking of rock climbing, I also volunteer with another organization called Young Women Who Crush, and they're super dope. They provide free rock climbing lessons in gym and also outdoors to high school students. Young Women and Ginger Expansive students is who they offer these services to, and they've been in existence, oh my gosh, I want to say they've been in existence for at least five years now. But they do great work, and I'm so proud to be a part of that organization. And actually, we've actually combined our efforts, La Rubea Collective and Young Women Who Crush, where Young Women Who Crush, for the past couple of years or past couple of summers, we've taken La Rubea out climbing outdoors, bouldering in Central Park. And then La Rubea has been teaching Young Women Who Crush members how to surf. So we've been doing that and we're continuing that relationship, that partnership. And it's been great and it's growing. And we love that our youth are getting to know each other and learning these skills. together.
0: And same question that I asked around surfing. How did you get into climbing? What was that entry point like? And, you know, how long have you been doing it? I'm curious what the climbing journey has been for you as well. So interesting. It was a friend of
1: mine. He was a climber. We worked together at the time. It was 2013 when I was introduced to climbing. He actually came up to me and was like, he told me about rock climbing. He told me about what he does. He was working part-time at this gym here in New York. And he was like, I think you will be into it. And I was like, really? I was like, I've thought about it. I've never know how to do it, how to e- even get started. But this is interesting that you're coming to me with this. And he came up to me again and said it at a different time. And I said, you know what? I was like, please keep like, asking me to join you at the gym. I was like, one of these days I'm going to say, yes. I was like, at the time, I, I was working so many jobs, my I was just crazy busy. But one day, I finally said yes, and again went to the gym and was hooked. Worked my butt off to buy a membership, and then he also took me outdoors. He was the first time I ever went outdoors. It was in the shot in the gunks, and Trad led a climb, and I followed and loved it, and was like, this is it. I just feel like my story is a, is a unique story and especially being a black woman too how often would you have someone say hey I see this for you I see you doing this I think that you are like so and then inviting me to come through and, and give me free access by the way like I didn't have to pay or anything they worked at the gym they invited me to come climb for free and I was able to do that oft, as often as I like and and I decided I wanted to you know work and save up money to buy a membership so I can you know go even just more regularly than I actually was because also once I did start going, I did notice there were some climbers of color there, but we were few and far between, unfortunately. Uh, But then also i during that time, that's when Brothers of Climbing formed. I remember seeing that happen, which was super exciting. And you know, other communities formed. Outside of that, I learned of other communities like Brown Girls Climb and all that kind of stuff. So those people like Mikkel and Brittany, they all inspire me to get involved and, you know, and to be part of the trying to create a solution to the problem of um, non-access to this activity.
0: I've had a lot of listeners of this podcast come up to me and say, okay, so like, what can I do? How can I help? What's the action steps to take? And I know that like, so often, obviously, it's also easy to say, "Like, okay, what's the checklist? What's the tangible thing I can do? And there's not always a clear pathway, right? But I really appreciate you sharing that story about the friend that, that came up that really pursued taking you climbing (laughs) because i think that that is a very interesting example of of one way that we start to open these spaces up and and i think i again i also want to acknowledge like it it doesn't maybe work that way for everybody you know maybe you would have been like uh no i'm good dude (laughs) like thanks but yeah i just appreciate you sharing that because i love hearing kind of like different pathways for how people got involved and like if it does involve other people what was that like? And did you appreciate that? Did you not appreciate that? Like starting to tell those stories, I think is really cool too, because that's a way we can start to share amongst the space, you know, saying like, oh, there, there might be entry points that, that require people that are doing the thing and very skilled at these things. Going back to the mentorship theme, I think like that some, it does sometimes require folks to reach out and say, hey, come join me.
2: Yeah. And community organizing is hard. Like it is hard to figure out how to meet people where they are, invite them in. You know, it's not always just all success stories and all just there's not always a clear
1: blueprint of how to do that work. Exactly. Can I also say, too, even when it looks like it's the success stories, we always still need help to continue doing this work and to, you know, take our kids out on trips so they can, you know, For La Roubaix, they can surf other breaks. For Young Women Who Crush, they can climb at other crags, get experience climbing at other crags. And just get the full outdoor experience is what we really want to give to La Bea Collective Youth and as well as to Young Women Who Crush Youth. So donating financially would be amazing. Donating a uh, gear and equipment. We would appreciate that. We would love that. We need it. We absolutely need it to continue doing what we're doing. We don't want to, to just survive. We want to thrive. And thriving is seeing uh, being able to provide the service for the youth for years and years to come. Thank you for mentioning that too. Cause I do think sometimes we forget
2: how much like $5 and $5 and $10 and $10 and $20 when you can, like those things add up. Like they make a huge difference. They
0: do. Okay, Faith, what is the Merrill Hydromox? I've started to see them popping up all over Instagram. I could try to answer that
2: question, but I think it makes more sense to ask one of the coolest people I know, a staple of the New York City-run community, Jeb Helato. So I got the scoop from him. Hydro uh, Hydromox, love them. In the summertime, I'm in the woods a lot. Like I go camping, I can, like hang out at the lake and they just seem like the perfect shoe because they're ventilated and they're waterproof. Like I just did that 50K. Probably like the last 10 miles, I was like, oh, I just can't wait to get these shoes up back on there. Just so like, like let them breathe and recover. You heard it from the source, an NYC sneakerhead, marathoner, ultra runner, and one of the most stylish people I know. Thanks, Jeb. The Merrill Mach. walk, don't run, to get you a pair.
0: I want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. Threshold is a Peabody award-winning podcast about people and the planet. Their new season is called Time to 1.5, and it explores the current moment in the climate crisis, including a lyrical ode to Earth's atmosphere and an intersectional look at the history and legacy of the Industrial Revolution. How did we get here, and what can we do about it? Listen to Threshold wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I wanted to, and I'm not even sure how exactly to, to talk about this, but kind of back to the question that Addie mentioned that we do hear so often from listeners of the podcast and just in general out in the world, particularly from white individuals who are like, what do I do now? Like, how do I help change? And I think, you know, there isn't one clear answer to that. We don't have the magic keys to hand out, unfortunately, on like, this is the recipe. But I do think that there's something really important about supporting BIPOC owned and led organizations where people are working in their communities with groups of people that they know, or are at least collaborating with folks from those communities. Like if you're a surfer trying to, you know, make a change or you're wherever, like going in and finding a really beloved teacher and partnering with them versus like saying I'm creating this program and I want to put it at this school so that you are like understanding what people actual needs and, and wants are. And, you know, with, with La Rubea started by Aiden and Warren who are from that community, like it just makes such a big difference, even from a level of trust. I think the amount of like residual and ongoing and kind of unnamed and hard to describe distrust that exists in so many communities that have been neglected, mistreated, overlooked, and disenfranchised for generations at this point, like a little kid might not necessarily be able to articulate that there's this feeling of distrust there and maybe they're able to work through it, but even like convincing their parents that you're the ones to take them out, it can't be understated how important it is to have mentors that look like the individuals, whether they're kids or parents or whole families that you're inviting out to something.
1: Yes, that is so true. Um, You said the key word, trust. Trust is everything. And the fact that Aiden and Warren are from this community or grew up here, you know, Warren was born here, says a lot, you know, and that's why we have the parents that we have and the youth that we have that are involved because they know Ada, they know Warren, you know, just from, you know, being in the community, just from their daily lives. And that's the amazing thing to have that trust. And sometimes, you know, there there are folks who have good intentions, good and well intentions, but they're follow through are, can be toxic and damaging in a way, especially when youth are involved. Um, And I want to say that I'm super proud and honored to be working with the La Bay Collective. And it's a beautiful thing that Aiden and Warren created.
2: I I was thinking about how we actually met (laughs) Aidan, which was at the Women's Climbing Festival in Bishop. And I think even in a space that was so many women and so many black and indigenous and people of color, Mm -hmm. we were some of the only black women, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And we ended up at the same boulder and we were just like stoked on each other. Basically (laughs) like that's that story. Yep. (laughs) Um, and you know, I think I'm now trying to remember honestly, which is like kind of blowing my mind if I had ever climbed with another black
1: woman before. And I don't think I had. Oh, wow. Like that trip to Bishop, that was like my second time climbing on the outdoors. And yeah, that's a good question. Had I ever climbed? No, I didn't. At that point, me either, Faith. At that point, me either. So you were the first and
2: outdoors too. Same. Yeah, that was my very first time climbing outdoors. Uh, Yeah, I definitely want to do a quick shout out to Flash Foxy. started by Shama John and all the different um, festivals that she is doing, including one. Well, that will be like a few days after this podcast, but including one about trail running that is literally just show up. And trail run and have a great time versus like, it doesn't have to be a race. It doesn't have to be a competition. Here are some workshops, like we're going to help you figure out how to do it. I really appreciate her approach to that work because there's not a lot of opportunities like that to like learn and try and fail and try again and be surrounded by incredible women at the same time
1: absolutely and also i want to thank her too for just starting flash foxy uh, women's climbing festival i would not have met you faith for one and also it would not have inspired me or challenged me to get outdoors more but that trip again that was my second time climbing outdoors got to climb with women and also got to climb with a black woman the first black woman i've ever got to climb with since i started climbing which was super dope That experience was just amazing to me. Bishop has a special place in my heart because of it. And Shelma as well. You know, I think the event was sold out and was able to reach out to Shelma. And she said, hey, there's a spot. And I was allowed to participate in the event. And so I'm grateful to her for that, for the opportunity.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I think we're so used to sticking out in so many of these activities. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like, What it does feel like to be the only one. I think this is something that I've actually been thinking a lot about recently. Like, I've been very aware for a long time that I'm often the only (laughs) woman or only black woman or only person of color in some of the places where I find myself because of the outdoor activities that I'm interested in. And that can be everything from like literally the climbing gym to climbing outside to a river when I want to go fly fishing to even like a meetup for running. Very often I can I can meet up with a group of 50 people and I can be the only black woman there or the only black person there. And it kind of wears on you. Like, I think it's definitely been wearing on me. And I at first wasn't even really that conscious of it, but it's something I've been trying to allow myself to articulate as a need recently, because I'm like, it does wear on you. And I, I don't know how to describe that for people that haven't had that experience, that it's tiring like and that you do have
1: to kind of be on in a different way yeah That's true. That's the thing. You have to be on in a different way. Just growing up myself, uh, I've always been in white spaces um, because I also always been interested in activities and sports that a lot of of my um, black and brown peers didn't participate in. And having to navigate that space, too, as the only person of color, as the only black person on the team or as a member and yeah, honestly it feels lonely and also always having to be on, always having to in a way not be a stereotype. And I grew up in the South. I grew up in Florida and on the Northwest part of Florida along the Gulf coast and I always felt like I needed to act a certain way around people who didn't look like me because otherwise they will throw stereotypes at me. Like I had people straight up throw different stereotypes and racist um, antidotes um, at me and me having to speak out against it and um, call them on it and, um, and let them know that that's not okay and that's unacceptable. But, yeah, so I've always been in this these white spaces and um, tried to navigate it and it felt lonely and here it is in my adult life that finally I'm just... Like I said, I'm inspired by Brittany from Brown Girls Climb, Mikel from Brothers of Climbing, and Lom from Try Hard Crew. That's the other organization I'm part of as well. Mom started the Try Hard Crew and invited me and Gen C to join her. And um, and she started these um, route setting clinics, um, all women, gender nonconforming route setting clinics, and has partnered with GP81, a local bouldering gym here in New York, in, in Brooklyn, New York these folks inspire me to want to create that space that I want to be in, that I can be myself in, that I don't have to be on, you know, or put on a certain face for specific members where I can just, where I can just be free, honestly, just free, you know.
0: I love that. That's so important. And, and, and it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's something that, we i again i've heard from a lot of these conversations that we've been lucky enough to have on the podcast where a lot of guests come on and say i've grown up in predominantly white spaces and navigated these white spaces for my whole life not everyone but a, you know a lot of these conversations are are happening and um, when we do ask guests about this and i think that i mean yeah as a white person getting to have an interracial dialogue with faith around outdoor inclusion and representation and what that means in our very homogenous outdoor industry in which we all operate. It's interesting. I think a lot about how it's one thing that you've had to navigate your whole life. I can't imagine the exhaustion, the, you know, the, I mean, the absolute outright racism you endured, the ways in which you've navigated these spaces and had to shoulder that burden your whole life and then to finally get to a space where (laughs) that freedom, like you can show that. I mean, I I get emotional hearing about that. And for many reasons, because it's just, it makes me smile and it makes me emotional because I think there's, I'm like, I'm sad that that is the reality for so many folks. And yet I'm also so thrilled to hear and joyous to hear that those spaces exist And that they're increasingly so it seems like thanks to you (laughs) and to others these spaces are starting to really manifest and i just think it is so important that they do exist and yet i'm sad that it had to be years and years of time that folks have had to endure wanting to go to a climbing gym and seeing literally no one else that looks like them And as Faith, you just said, it wears, it can't, I I can only imagine it wears on you. I'm just so glad that our, that the industry is starting to shift in this way, but it's not the industry. It's folks like yourself, change makers within these outdoor sports, without these outdoor spaces, like you are changing, literally changing the face of what these sports, what these programs look like. So thank you for that. Thank you. I mean, I'm happy to be part of the change. I mean, it's
1: taken it takes a community to, um, to make this happen. Uh, I also do want to add growing up in these spaces. And like I said, there were people who are outright, you know, uh, uh, throw racist comments towards me, um, at me and having to fight against that or speak out against that and stand up for myself and, and for other black and brown folks. There's also my family, like my mom, my aunties, my grandmothers. You know, they're a big part of the church and they do a lot of community work with the church. My mother continues to do that. She, you know, runs a, a food program at the church where they provide free groceries, they provide free lunch, and she runs that. And I had them as an example. I had them to go home to. I had my mother to go home to, who, she, also is a big example. Actually, she's part, the first example I had of building community, you know, and creating a safe space for members of our community. So she's actually the first person that left an impression on me in regards to building a community and a safe space for, you know, for people that look like us. And I just want to give her a shout out because <laughs> I love her. She's my favorite person in the world. It is so hard to have
2: these conversations in a public way. I think that is like something that I've been thinking a lot about recently because I feel that it is so important for people. What am I trying to say? I, I feel like it's very important for our white peers to be able to hear people of color talking about their experiences. I think it is so hard to try to get a sense of that without hearing it. And at the same time, it is really hard to do because there's this fear and there's this protectiveness and there's this thinking that folks won't understand, like, I think it's very important to say being black and brown doesn't mean being broken, broken. And at the same time, we come from communities that have been purposefully disenfranchised, purposely cut off from resources. And those resources are everything from actual funding to land access to money access to, I mean, power. I also grew up in the church and seeing not only my own family, but also some of those mothers and deacons like really caring for community, I think also means I grew up in a way where I knew that was my responsibility because I also knew no one else was going to do it. I think we grew up seeing us take care of us because we had to, because no one else was going to. And I just think that's really important to note because it's something really incredible about us, right? Like Despite the lack of support to do that, sometimes I think and I, and i also think what you said about like having stereotypes thrown at you and i've talked with so many people from different identities about this but like once it happens to you it could happen to you at any time and you walk around knowing that and then you kind of have to watch your back right and we talked with Erin McGrady about you know kind of that as like a, a loss of innocence like going from kid to adult and maybe being more fearful now as a you know smaller framed queer asian woman maybe being more you know trepidatious about navigating spaces as an adult than she was even as a kid. And that is so sad to me and at the same time like people need to know that cuz I think we get gaslit a lot. We have people questioning our experience a lot. It's like, "Well, was it really because you're black or was it really because you're Asian or was it really because you're a woman?" And it's like, "No, it is." And you questioning that right now, that doesn't help, right? Cuz then that makes me feel like my previous experiences my whole life are somehow something that that need to be validated by you because you've never had that experience and because it's hard to believe mm-hmm.
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, just always be on guard that's tiring, it's exhausting to always be on guard. it sucks, it's unfortunate, and I carry that as a kid and um and I carry that as an adult, although as an adult, I'm more confident and at this point, I just. I'm more confident in being myself, no matter what, no matter where I am, and just ready to handle whatever someone wants to throw at me. You know, if it's a racist comment or a particular stereotype, just ready to respond and and let them know that it's unacceptable and that it's not okay for them to to speak that way to me or to anyone else or to put that onto me or anyone else yeah
2: yeah i i I appreciate i appreciate that um and also you opening the door
1: to be able to talk about that because it's a it's a hard thing to talk about it is it is and unfortunately it just seems like it's not gonna it's not um it's still prevalent you know it's still prevalent it's still happening you have people of color who will always be in predominantly white spaces or all white spaces where they'll be the only one and having to navigate and always be on guard and it, it's It's hard and it's challenging and it's upsetting to think about human beings being put in a position and having to live that way,
2: yeah, yeah, we actually forgot to ask you one of our staple opening questions, Addie, I don't know if you want to ask
0: I'll go ahead. We just dove right in. We were so excited to <laughs> to ask you all of our questions, so a we have a question we ask every one of our guests that comes on the podcast, which is what does playing outside mean to you? What does that phrase mean?
1: Oh, playing
0: outside means freedom.
1: That's what it means to me. I say that because growing up down south, we were surrounded by like the woods, um, trees and so forth and so on. And I love to explore them <laughs> and, um, and playing outside as an adult with rock climbing and surfing. It's that same feeling, exploring and freedom, freedom to explore.
0: I love that. It's so cool. Cause we designed, you know, we were, we were in the midst of figuring out like, what question do we want to ask each one of our guests that comes on? And we really wanted to get at get go back to childhood with folks but we didn't want to be like tell us about your you know like what I mean We you can always ask like tell us about your childhood and your upbringing but we kind of wanted to get at it in a bit more of a roundabout way and I love every I think to a person we've had so many cool flashbacks like yours you know just getting going back to a younger age or um, a, a different time and just like getting to the root of what it means for folks and why it and and how it's blossomed in people's lives now, you know, how it shows up now for all of our outdoor enthusiasts, or even, you know, we don't always have surfer, climber, runner, uh, adventure types on the podcast. Sometimes we have scientists, sometimes we have TV hosts, et cetera, but really it it is always seemingly rooted in in a childhood's a childlike and childhood sense of play so I love hearing that yeah uh, I mean with me if I can add to that too the memory of we had wild
1: blackberries that would grow out there and so going to go pick those and eat them oh gosh they were so good oh they were so good we had like the dark blackberries and then there were ones that were reddish in color so those were like a bit tart oh you had a plethora of type of uh, black uh, berries that were grown wild blackberries that were grown out there in the woods that we used to explore and had our little adventures in. (laughs) And it's funny to see myself as an adult where I'm exploring and having my adventures, traveling nationally here in the States and also outside the States, climbing and surfing.
2: So cool, so cool. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your stories and you all sharing Just to peek into like a day in the life in Far Rockaway as a surfer with us, even just like walking around and eating tacos and meeting other people in the community was really beautiful. So I'm just so grateful that we got to do that with you and
1: that you're willing to have this great conversation with us here too. Absolutely! Thank you for inviting me to be part of this episode. I'm so thankful to you both, and I'm you're welcome back to join us anytime to get out and play in the water together, or to go play out in the like out and rock climb together, play out with rocks, whatever. Let's do it! Let's get it going. New York City is just full of so many adventures. Unfortunately, not everyone can see it, um, but I'm so happy that I got to share that with you both.
0: Thank you so much to Atongular for your time, energy, and for the work you do to bring more folks into the outdoors. We both look up to you immensely. For more information on what Atongular is
2: up to, and to get involved with Larubea Collective, check them out on Instagram at, at Surfing. That's L-A-R-U-B-E-Y-A surfing. They actually have a cool raffle going on right now as a fundraiser for the org, so check that out too. As always, don't forget to check out our videos. We went surfing with Atangular and Tarumi of Larubea for this episode and visited during their beach cleanup. You can find it all on at trailahead underscore podcast on Instagram.
0: Welcome to the debrief.
2: (laughs) Welcome to the debrief.
0: So I think today we wanted to talk a little bit more about affinity spaces. And I know that came up in our conversation with Atangular, which I thought was really interesting to dive a little bit more into, because I realize we haven't talked about that in any episodes, or just debriefed it with folks and with each other.
2: Totally. Yeah. And we are talking to a lot of different people who either belong to or even have co-founded groups that are somehow like, I mean, I wonder if people even know what affinity space means, essentially. But like, I mean, a lot of the times, my, the first affinity spaces I think about are like in high school when you, I joined like the Italian club and then the Black and Hispanic Student Alliance. And like, I was very involved with, well, I kind of fell off an Italian club, but.
0: an <laughs> <laughs> so affinity space in that regard, though, so that's like, those are actually two super interesting examples that you just used. So when you said Italian club, I was like, oh, a language learning club. But then you said Black and Hispanic students, and I was like, oh, that makes sense to me as an affinity space of, like, four students who identify as Black or Hispanic, and yet, like, the Italian example felt more like a learning, a language learning. But are you saying, like, I those are affinity Yeah, spaces?
2: nobody was learning Italian in our Italian club. It was, like, <laughs> eating pasta and, like, maybe watching Italian movies in English. <laughs>
0: But did that? Okay, that is. First of all, yes. Can can I be a part of a club like that? But like, is th- so? Yeah. So I think defining affinity space is actually a really interesting conversation in and of itself because I think I think of it more as a space for. Well, actually, there may be a couple ways to define it. So there's one way I've seen, and like, let's talk about this because I want to. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. But there's one way All I've way. seen where it's really for folks o- who identify as a certain as, who identify a certain way and only for those folks, right? That's maybe it's like we're talking about LGBTQ plus folks in the outdoors. And like some affinity spaces like that are really only for folks that identify that way. Whereas other affinity spaces, and maybe they're not defined as such, but I've seen as like, you know, uh, a hiking group that welcomes everyone, come one, come all, but it's really formed to, and the purpose and mission is really to get folks of color or even folks that have been traditionally underrepresented in the outdoors into the outdoors. So I think those are just really two interesting examples of, you know, the kind of come one, come all, we're open to everyone model, but we really exist to serve a certain community. Or a space that is actually closed for a good reason, like to provide a safe space for people that want to or or do identify a certain way and want to be with only those people. Not to take this off of Italian club. I mean, Italian club sounds great. <laughs> but <laughs>
2: yeah. No, I mean, look, I I love this. It it immediately makes me think of Priya Parker mm-hmm. who wrote the book, The Art of Gathering. Mm, yes, But like the art of gathering is all about like when we bring people together, what are we bringing them together for? How are we explaining to them like what kind of space this is going to be, et cetera? Because affinity just means common interest, mm-hmm. right? It means like, you know, when you say like, I have an affinity for wearing green, right? Like I could have a green wearing affinity space. And, but, but then there's a, like the usage of the word and how it's understood, like how it's most commonly used is creating a space for people who they have something in common, but most often the need for that space is because there's some kind of history of exclusion. Right. So that affinity space might be something that's creating an LGBTQIA2S plus space for folks who identify as queer, or maybe don't identify as queer. But the reason for that is that potentially, and there are some that are like specifically for if you think about the Venture Out Project, the Venture Out Project is a group that creates outings in the outdoors for um, folks who identify as queer. And then some of their outings are specifically for folks who are trans or gender nonconforming. And a part of that is trying to create a space for folks that maybe haven't had the option to be able to be freely themselves without judgment in another space. And so I think that's the thing that's important is like in some of those spaces, it needs to be a closed group because of the healing that needs to happen for the people in that group so that they can then just focus on doing the thing, Yeah, right? Not having to focus on who's looking at me, who's judging me. In which ways am I being misunderstood, and which ways am I maybe being stereotyped? You know, and I think that's what Atong talks about: is like trying to move through the world and knowing that at any given moment, someone might say something that's either a microaggression or a macroaggression, or do something that is like outright violent, or racist, or sexist, or homophobic, or Islamophobic, and living in a way where that could happen at any, at any moment means like a being on edge and mm-hmm. B sometimes not being able to focus on whatever else is happening. Cause you have to watch your back. So the thing about an affinity space is a space is being created that says, Hey, we know what you've been through to a certain extent. We have some level of understanding partially cause like we maybe share that same identity. And so we're gonna say to you that, like, by being together in this space, that's not gonna happen here. Mm-hmm. And I think some of those affinity groups are. Some people do clarify; they'll say and allies. Yep. Right. So it's still the art of gathering and saying, anyone that's like down to basically play by these rules and like be a part of creating the safe space, y'all are welcome too. Mm-hmm. But it's just trying to make clear like yeah, what's I mean. not a- a- allowed in the space. Yeah. But I, I do think like. Yeah, I think very often people see an affinity space and think, oh my God, that's not for me. And I think like, I honestly, I'm like, just ask. Yeah. If you're not sure, just ask. Like there are some meetups where, and I think the other thing that's interesting is like, I feel like I'm rambling, but the other thing that's interesting is like, as a person of color, I'm expected to walk through a world where I might be the only one Mm. in all these different spaces that Mm -hmm. I go to. And I'm expected to be used to that. And I'm expected to be comfortable in that. I would argue that I really don't think that white people are expected to do that very Mm -hmm. often Mm -hmm. or that they have the opposite experience very often of being the only one. And so I think the understanding of how tiring that is, is very low.
0: So in that way, I totally agree with you. I think there are very few times in my life in that regard where I've been the only we've talked, we've actually had that conversation. I know a bunch before. And I think... So I guess like in that vein, are you saying that I don't want to take your point too far, but like, I'm curious your thoughts on white folks showing up to affinity spaces. I'm asking this or sort of like trying to pull this out a little bit more from your point, because I have faced this myself where I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm like supposed to be in this space. And I don't, but I don't ask To your point of like, just ask. These spaces really need to exist for a very specific reason, for safety, for comfort, for identity, for affirmation, and to do the outdoor activity or any activity really without that fear of judgment, without that fear of outright racism, all of the things you just said. But but then I also have this other part of me, a, a big part of me, as you and probably listeners know, of wanting to have this conversation and wanting to make these spaces more inclusive. So I think that's been some. That's something I've been grappling with: is how can I make the space more inclusive? Is it sometimes that I need to step aside and let those wonderful affinity spaces happen, and not be inserting myself as a white person that might make someone feel uncomfortable? Or is it that maybe I need to show up to those spaces and feel that my, maybe my own—I don't know if it would be discomfort. I hope not, but maybe like I need to feel that. I I have not felt that a lot in my life. But like, that's not even what it's about. Like, I, I hope that me, me showing up, it's more than a selfish pursuit of this, this feeling. I hope that it's more like, how can I create a more inclusive space by doing so? But I just think that in some cases, I've noticed that like, I think the language around this group really feels like it's really for folks that identify a certain way and it's not for allies as well. But I think that was a good point also about bringing up like, this group and allies. So I've been trying to be more sensitive to that language as I read about groups um, and meetups and stuff like that.
2: I I think this is why the art of gathering is actually so important for people who are organizers as well, is for them also to be clear about what kind of space it is. The reason why I made that jump to like, I'm expected to be comfortable wherever I am is like the discomfort of asking, is like what should happen right like just say is this a space for me you know just like because because the discomfort that i feel is constant like it's just expected it's just normal so like i think that there's not a lot of discomfort that is placed as often on white people to have to say like is you like hey based on the history of oppression is this a place for me right now or are people trying to heal from oppression that was at the hands of not me, but of white people, right. Or, or trying to heal from disenfranchisement that has happened when I benefit from the same system. You know, I think that's the thing is like, it's hard to, to say like, it's actually not, it's not about you, right. It's not about your guilt. Like, it's not about, you know, not you specifically Addie, but like to anyone just being like, it's actually not about your guilt. Like, and I think that's the hard thing is like, so often when the affinity space exists, there's this like, accusation of reverse racism or discrimination against like cis hetero kids like you know and it's like that's not what's going on it's just like when you think about power dynamics historically right we use the term white male and moneyed when talking to Gabe but like historically those are the folks that haven't had any part of their identity y- used against them and so like Atong and I met at a women's it's climbing festival right like people for for women and, and gender non-conforming folks at that festival and it was so nice because the machismo that has been like the environment of so many climbing gyms of oh you need to do it this way or this is how you climb versus like how's your body telling you to do this route you know the mansplaining That has historically been a part of that was like, oh, there's a girl climbing. Let me go tell her how to do it because she clearly doesn't know or she's clearly not strong enough. So like, you know, that's a it's a more acceptable and, and more understood affinity space to make something like women's only. I mean, even if you look at money, women make 79 cents to every dollar that a man makes, which essentially means that like my gym membership costs more, my Gas costs more, right? Because the value of my work is less as a woman than it is for a man. Then if you look at that for women of color, I mean it plummets, right?
0: What's interesting about this is that the gendered like women to men statistic is thrown around all the time. But the fact that this the fact that we're looking the statistic up right now says even even says something in and of itself. Because that is not in common dialogue. And that's a problem alone.
2: This was the issue with the feminist movement in the seventies was that the black scholars were saying like, yes, and like, we wanna be a part of this with you and the issues that you're facing, like women wanting to be like working out of the home and having the right to do that. Black women were like, yeah, we've never not worked out of the home. We've actually worked in your homes. So, like, this isn't the same issue. So don't don't say, well, let's not talk about that for now because right now we're trying to get equality for women. It's like, well, actually, no, you're trying to get equality for white women and deal with the problems that you have while at the same time putting our issues at bay. So, like, yes, having a women's group is really important. I love being in those spaces. And then at the same time, like... You know, I even just said, like, I make 79 cents to a dollar as a woman. No, actually, as a Black woman, that statistic is closer to 60 cents. And as a Hispanic or Latinx woman, that would be more like 55 cents, you know? So it's like, but when you look at that, which feels like an aside, but I'm going to try to bring it back around, there is very clear inequity. And we're always trying to deny that there is inequity, but it still exists and it's pervasive. So when you know that literally the value of your money is one thing that we can prove is different. What, el- what else is different? And then how? Do, where can you go to talk about what that feels like to be seeing in the numbers, seeing in your wallet, seeing that reflected in your household, seeing that reflected in how people look at you when, when you walk into a store because they assume you can't afford things or not, right? Because they know that your money is less, that your work is less valued. So they assume you can't afford something when you walk into a store. like. What does that feel like? And can I talk about that in spaces where people are benefiting from that and therefore gaslighting me when I say that certain things happen to me as a queer person or as a woman of color, as an Asian female, right? Like these are all identities that I don't hold, but that our different guests have brought up to say it matters. And I feel it every day. And that to me is why these affinity spaces are so important. And particularly in an outdoor space, it's like, We're doing very physical endeavors. And there's a lot of vulnerability in moving your body in a new and different way and feeling like, is my body and therefore am I enough? Can I do the thing, right? Like, am I gonna be able to be successful in this skin that I am in? Or am I gonna fail in front of everyone and they're going to say it's because of the way that I look or the amount that I weigh or the language that I speak or my citizenship status. And so rather than have to deal with potential shame and guilt and embarrassment and judgment that you deal with every day, you just won't do the new thing. Like you won't allow yourself to fail because you feel like that failure that you can't like that that you're not allowed to, that like life's too hard for you. You don't get the chance, you know? And so I think that's why the affinity groups are so important. It's like for a little bit, you can like lay that down at the door and just do the thing.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate your perspective on that because I think you just answered so well a question that I have actually been asked a few times by white folks talking about affinity spaces in the outdoors Asking very, you know, very genuinely genuine question. I don't want to assume intent other than curiosity or discussion. But coming from someone who is white and has this privilege, but asked, um, are affinity spaces setting us back? And here's where this question goes: our affinity space is setting us back by silo, further siloing the outdoors, and not, you know, being a sort of all inclusive, everyone can join and. You know, let's all do this all together. That I think is where that question is coming from. Like, well, aren't affinity spaces just sort of further excluding, I'm putting air quotes around all of this because I'm just trying to represent this question, people from all participating together, if you will. And your answer, your framing of that, Faith, just now was a phenomenal laying out of the fact that until these differences do not exist, which statistically, financially, economically etc they do undeniably they do these the societal structures and hierarchies and systems of oppression that are built into society until that does not magically exist one day and gosh are we working towards a day where that doesn't but until then we have to have these spaces is is my understanding like now i'm seeing this clear answer of, I mean, of course, I I immediately respond with, you know, yes, of course, we need these spaces, because it needs to be a place where people feel comfortable to even enter into the outdoors as an entry point in the first place. And so it's just, I just so appreciate your answer, because I think that this gives me new, a new answer to people that I have this discussion with. This is the way that we get more folks involved. Sure, maybe we have spaces where allies are invited, or where it's more, quote, inclusive of everyone. But like the actual inclusion here is getting folks who, who share an identity and who share these, these experiences that you just described and who are able to feel comfortable around each other. Like that's actually inclusion in the outdoors. That's the way I think one of the ways that we are going to start to actually diversify or increase representation or however you want to say it. Like, that is an entry point that's so important. And I just I think the way that you have outlined this is 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 my new answer. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. That makes me happy.
2: (laughs) I think I mean, I think, you know, it's the debrief. So we'll probably wrap it up soon. But I think it's an ongoing conversation and there's so many places we can go. And we would love to hear from all of you. Like, what do you what do you think about this? And for folks that are looking for something to get involved with, we actually, Addie and I, made a documentary in 2019. And if you go on our website, the doc is called This Land, but if you go to thislanddoc.com slash play, you can find all of these different affinity groups that you might be able to get involved in. And a lot of our guests have either been founders or involved in some of these groups and we need to update it. So if there's a group we should add, let us know and we'll add it. But that's thislanddoc.com slash play to find some folks to go get outside with.
0: Thanks for joining us on the debrief. Thank you. The trail ahead is created and hosted by us, Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. It's produced by Anna Agogo at Adode Media. Christina Stella is our editor and sound designer. Podcast art is by Shar Tuyasawa. Check her out on Instagram at Punky Aloha. And special thanks to the amazing teams at Merrill and Patagonia. Thank you also to our team on the visual side. Our videos
2: are filmed by Tyler wilkinson Ray, Alex Igidbashian, and Matt Hayes, and are edited by Jillian Sorau at Cartel TV. Our still images are captured by Fred Goris
0: and Caroline Watley. For updates and additional links, visit trailaheadpodcast.com, where you can also leave us a voicemail. If you like what you hear, please send us a note via Instagram at at trailahead underscore podcast and subscribe please also consider checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ahead. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word. If you like what you hear,
2: please tell a friend. Don't forget to check out the video profiles we make about each of our guests. And to all of our incredible guests, thank you. You make the world better. See you next episode.